CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. It's great to have you with us for another show today. Um, boy, things got pretty contentious on Capitol Hill, a late-night session last night. We're, we're used to uh, thinking about how Republicans and Democrats on the Hill uh, are, are sniping at one another, angrily uh, exchanging charges uh, against one another. Last night, it was all about intra-party uh, uh, fighting over the uh, way in which Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi wants to deal with a couple of important measures. One, the massive infrastructure bill, which has now passed the Senate and which awaits approval in the House, and uh, passing a blueprint for President Biden's $3.5 trillion budget bill um, this isn't the final vote on that bill. This is starting the procedures. And thank goodness we have Tamar Hallerman with us today because this gets a little wonky and nobody un- understands budget matters in Washington the way Tamar does. And I'll introduce her in a minute. Um, but the reason uh, we're going to talk about it here is because Carolyn Bordeaux, 7th District Congresswoman, is in the middle of the fight. She and a handful of other so-called moderates uh, say they want that infrastructure bill passed. They don't want it tied immediately to the budget blueprint. And we're going to talk about all of the implications of this, despite the fact that it may sound like we're getting a bit into the weeds. In fact, there are significant um, uh, implications for how this is all unfolding. So that said, it is Tuesday, which means Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the AJC, is here. But Tamar, you have vast experience, no, no overstatement covering Capitol Hill, and particularly budget matters. So, boy, am I glad you're here today. Tamar? I'm, I'm thrilled I get to use my years of budget knowledge that's been collecting <laughs> dust in my brain for a change. So I cannot wait to dive in. You cannot tell me that this isn't one of those days when you kind of miss being up on the Hill watching this unfold. I don't know if I'd go that far, but I'm still happy to talk about it. I'm happy to not be that reporter standing there at midnight waiting for Nancy Pelosi to come out of my office because that was my life for a very long time. (laughs) (laughs) We're also joined today by uh, Democratic State Representative Scott Hokum, who represents Atlanta. Scott, we're awfully glad to have you here today to talk about a number of issues in the news. But we're going to turn to you at a certain point in the show because you have great experience in dealing with the processes in which American troops began the withdrawal from Iraq. And so your observations about Afghanistan and the latest there are are welcome on the show. How are you doing? I'm well. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be with you this morning. Leo Smith is with us as well. He's a Republican strategist. He also is the founder and the head of Engaged Futures Group, which is a government affairs organization. Leo, you do a little lobbying, uh, but you also work on social issues and look to build coalitions uh, among disparate people uh, who might have different points of view. Right, Leo? 
Yes, that seems to be uh, bridge building and coalitions is a hot item these days. Much needed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thanks for being here, Leo. And we're welcoming for the first time uh, to Political Rewind, uh, Claire Sanders, who is a professor of political science and public administration at Georgia College in Milledgeville. Claire, you said you've been teaching at Georgia College for 15 plus years. Um, and we're really glad to have you here uh, because um, we haven't had a Georgia College professor on the show. So, so welcome. Thanks so much for the invitation. I'm so happy to be here today. When we, when we have a first-time panelist, we'd like to give a little background for our listeners. You grew up in Georgia, went to school in Georgia. Just tell us a, a, a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. I grew up in um, Greene County, Georgia, which is halfway between um, Augusta and Atlanta. I went to school at Georgia College and as an undergraduate and had plans for graduate school, but was offered a graduate assistantship here at Georgia College. Um, I also worked in local government, local election administration. I clerked for a probate judge. So state and local government is near and dear to my heart. And um, of course, the state is near and dear to my heart. So um, I enjoy um, teaching and, and especially teaching um, election law and administration and sharing my professional experiences with, with my students. What One last note, uh, it would be uh, wrong of us, uh, given that you're on the show, not to point out that um, George College has a new president, Kathy Cox, now been confirmed former Secretary of State, former president of Young Harris College, former dean of law school, uh, at uh, Mercer in uh, Macon. And I have to add one of our favorite uh, guests on this show over the years. So congratulations on that, Claire. Thank you. We're excited to welcome Secretary, former Secretary of State Kathy Cox to our college as our president. So we're very excited about that. Okay, um, tomorrow, let's get right to it. And, and let me set just this stage a little bit here. Um, there has we, we know that President Biden and Democrats have felt frustrated that it's been difficult to get bipartisan support for some of what the president uh, wants to accomplish. He has a sweeping agenda. Um, but he was able to get bipartisan support in the Senate for the infrastructure bill, uh, given that there are members of the Senate, and for that matter, the House, who recognize we have crumbling infrastructure across the United States. So the bill's now sitting over at the House. But at the same time, uh, there's this $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package, which President Biden has wants to get through. It includes Medicare expansion, paid family leave, universal pre-K, immigration reform, and some money, not as much as a lot of people wish, for climate change measures. What's happened in the House is that Speaker Pelosi has said, we're not going to do these separately. We think that the vision for the budget bill is so enormous and so, speaks so clearly to what the biggest agenda that Democrats now have. Um, we got to do them together, infrastructure and budget reconciliation. Uh, Carolyn Bordeaux, one of maybe nine or ten moderates who have said no way. We've got to do them separately. Bordeaux, whose background is in budgets, um, working at the state of Georgia, um, understands <laughs> spending pretty clearly. And she's joined those forces who have said, 
we are not going to do both together. And that's led to an enormous fight among Democrats. Last night, uh, the caucus got very testy. Um, Politico reported this morning language that was being used by the progressive Democrats uh, firing at the moderates like Bordeaux that was appalling to someone like me. <laughs> so help us understand all this, Damar. Nancy Pelosi fundamentally has a math problem. Her um, majority only stands by three votes, so she really cannot lose anyone for anything she wants to do, especially if it's going to help Biden help her um, you know, vulnerable House majority keep it that way. So that means she can't lose liberals, and that means she can't lose centrists who have very differing ideas in terms of what they want to do. So in terms of these two huge items on the agenda, you moderates um, in suburban districts like Carolyn Bordeaux's that until last year were um, held by Republicans um, who are itching to get this infrastructure bill done. It's an easy win. It's a way to appeal to moderate voters, to Republican voters, um, something to help them as they they look ahead at, at a tough reelection battle. Um, they're not as keen on this $3.5 trillion reconciliation package. On the other side of the coin, you have your progressives, you have your AOCs, you have your Rashida Tlaibs, who are super anxious to get this $3.5 trillion package done. They see this as a huge extension of, of Democratic priorities, something that the party has not been able to do in, in decades, and they might not be able to do for decades more. So they're chomping at the bit to do this. They're not the most excited about this infrastructure plan. They feel like it could have gone much farther. So they're not in, as inclined to support that. So what Pelosi is doing is tying these two packages together. Um, she's forcing centrists to have a stake in the reconciliation bill, and she's forcing progressives to have a stake in this infrastructure bill. So that's why we're seeing all of this fighting. Um, we actually heard uh, uh, some of the progressive members saying about the uh, moderates like Bordeaux, uh, you, you, what, what, what the GD do you think you're doing? The F word was invoked at one point by a progressive member as the caucus fought over this last night. It got really angry. Um, Claire, um, Carolyn Bordeaux was one of, I think, nine uh, Democrat moderates, Democratic moderates, who wrote a, uh, an opinion piece for the Washington Post about all this the other day. And I just want to read you one paragraph and then get you and everybody else in the, in the, mm -hmm. in the uh, conversation. It says, among other things, when we ran in our districts, we promised our constituents we would work across the aisle to solve their problems responsibly, that we would focus on bringing back jobs, building our economy, investing in infrastructure, and tackling existential threats such as climate change. The bipartisan infrastructure bill delivers just that, thoughtful policy that will make historic investment in transit, rail, roads, bridges, tunnels, water, and wastewater. Um, but they also go on to say that they want to be able to consider the $3.5 trillion package in a much more methodical way and want the two severed. Claire? Yes. Yeah, so what I take from this is, first of all, um, legislators are always, as we know, all politics is local. Legislators want to take credit and bring earmarks to benefit their, their districts and their constituency. So this really highlights that tension that representatives have, especially Bordeaux and the 7th District, with satisfying and appeasing their constituency, their local constituency, 
and the differences that exist between local constituencies and national constituencies. So senators have a much um, different constituency than a representative. And and as Tamar was saying, Representative Bordeaux is having to walk a thin line between appeasing the base of her party and also um, taking um, bringing home um, victories for her district and appeasing those those independents and those um, purple voters, I call them, that sort of brought her over over the line. Scott. Let me begin by saying I'm not immune to using some colorful language from time to time during the legislative <laughs> process. Um, anybody that knows me knows that's true. Um, and, and it is uh, it, it is a hard effort, even within parties. And I think I think Congresswoman Bordeaux is one of the most conscientious, diligent, uh, thoughtful and smart legislators that we have in Washington, D.C. She does her homework. Um, she is in a, a challenging political spot, but I think her main motivation is really on the policy. And what she sees is that there is a win here in, in, in terms of getting infrastructure done, which is something that we all, I think, across party lines and ideology recognize that it's something that we need to do. And they just don't want to delay it anymore. They want to uh, get it signed, sealed, and delivered so we can start fixing these things. And uh, I don't know that that's a completely unreasonable position, but I recognize the politics of it all. Leo, the, the most cynical take on all this is that Bordeaux is in a district that is still, to some extent, in play. Um, Democrats, I mean, Republicans are going to try to go after her and take that seat away from her. Certainly redistricting will have an impact on that reapportionment. Uh, but, but as Scott Hokum points out, it is probably much fairer to also say that, um, that Carolyn Bordeaux has been a physical, a physical, I don't know if conservative is the correct word or not, because I, I don't know her record that deeply. But let's just say in her position with the state of Georgia at budget and planning, she understands what, uh, uh, how to balance spending against revenues. And so, as Scott points out, there's definitely a public policy side of this for her. Oh, no doubt. But, uh, you know, it's interesting that we're calling or some are calling uh, Carolyn Bordeaux a, a moderate. I mean, in fact, I think she is a progressive. Um, I think that this play is completely um, about her being concerned about 2022 um, and the redistricting process, which will probably uh, make that uh, district much more favorable to the Republican candidate McCormick. Um, and to the point that I think that Carolyn Bordeaux may even be considering um, with the fact that Biden is not coming to the 7th District to give her aid and say, look, you can be a little bit more on the progressive side and I will rescue you. Pelosi's not doing that either. I mean, I'm wondering if Bordeaux is even considering running for LG or something like that and pulling out of the 7th if it gets redistricted to heavily Republican. There is still plus one, by the way, um, Republican. Tomorrow. She's in a challenge. She's in a challenging spot. You know, she Bordeaux campaigned on on transportation and and traffic being soul sucking. I remember her talking about that a lot in Gwinnett. And there's not a ton in Washington to do other than tinkering with funding formulas for highways. So this is, you know, if if she were to get this infrastructure bill 
past, I mean, that's a huge victory for her to come home, like a lot of bacon to, to bring home. Um, and I think Leo's right in that she has to be worried about being redistricted out of her, um, her seat next year. Republicans are certainly salivating at the opportunity to retake the seventh. At the same time, she now also has to be worried about uh, attracting a primary challenge. This is the first time she's run aground of progressives since she's been elected. She really has been voting with the party and Pelosi since she's gotten here with, with a small exception recently on, on the budget. Um, and so the anger that she has gotten from progressives in her district, including Nabila Islam, um, you know, a young activist who ran against her, who now runs a bunch of super PACs, that has to be a scary thing. So I, I wonder how much now uh, Representative Bordeaux is hoping all of this can be over sooner rather than later. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. Uh, uh, she, the fire that'll come at her from Republicans right now may be nothing compared to the Democrats in Georgia who are saying, hey, we sent you to Washington to accomplish an agenda. Why aren't you uh, dealing with it? Uh, but, but Scott, um, let me also point out that what happened last night is that by midnight, uh, the, Pelosi recognized she was not going to get the vote she needed uh, for either measure, uh, so she sent everybody home. They're back this morning uh, to continue working. We'll see how this all plays out. Pelosi's playing hardball, Scott. Pelosi <laughs> called this group of moderate Democrats. Um, she said, "It's not. this isn't amateur hour. Ouch. That's a very strong statement, Scott, for a Democratic speaker of the House to make about members of her own party. I agree with you. I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of that, for sure. Um, and I think that that just shows how important um, this is to Congresswoman Bordeaux and others, because they're taking all this heat, they're taking all this fire, and they're willing to do so because they believe that this is the right move uh, for their districts. And um, and as Tamar point, pointed out, um, I live just south of the 7th, but it is Gwinnett, and that corridor would really benefit greatly from infrastructure spending. Um, and, and it's in my mind, it's much more of a sure thing, whereas the budget resolution is going to be a, a lot more challenging, a lot more divisive, and um, we'll see how it plays out. Speaker Pelosi is a very, very shrewd political player, and I think in the end she will find some way to bring everybody to the table. Um, Claire and Leah, let me expand the lens on this to a more national perspective for mm -hmm. just a couple minutes here. Um, it... First of all, one of the reasons Pelosi is playing hardball is she recognizes that the midterms are only a year plus away, and who knows who's going to control the House next uh, after the next election. And uh, she has been working on a very progressive vision of what a Democratic president can accomplish. So Medicare expansion, family leave, universal care, all these things are uh, visions that Democratic, progressive Democrats have wanted to push through for a very long time. So we get why she's uh, really being uh, uh, playing hardball on this. But, but I would suggest there two other things about this. Number one, Republicans can probably sit back and be gleeful about Democratic infighting, but the fact of the matter is their unwillingness to in any way uh, beyond the infrastructure bill to play ball with President Biden is part of the problem that uh, the president and his party uh, face. But here's the other thing. Biden's approval numbers have slipped. The Afghanistan withdrawal has hurt him. 
Uh, COVID numbers are out of control again. And President Biden does not need a defeat in Congress uh, to add to his problems, I think it's fair to say. Yes? Yes, I, I, I agree with you, Bill. I think that in terms of what um, Pelosi is doing, she is defending and protecting the Democratic agenda from a national perspective. And really, this would be um, when we're talking about mandates and what Democrats elect or, or Democratic voters elected Democrats to do, um, delivering on this budget bill would be um, actually implementing the Democratic um, platform into public policy, transformative public policy. And so if if this these deals don't go through, if these deals fail, then you have um, President Biden in a very um, precarious position. Um, he was very supportive of the infrastructure bill, at least publicly, in a statement when um, it passed and said that it would be a standalone um, vote, that it should be handled as a standalone issue because it was a bipartisan effort. Um, and that's the moderates want that to happen. The progressives want to um, implement the democratic agenda. And so, again, you have this tension between local constituencies, natural, um, national constituencies that is playing out and it's putting the democratic um, platform in jeopardy. Leo? Yeah, you know, and again, speaking back to what uh, Holcomb just mentioned about Nancy Pelosi's shrewdness, related to that platform, they know how big the Democrats have played this whole idea of voter suppression and the need for Voting Rights Act. Then she looks at Carolyn Bordeaux, and she brings up the ultimate icon, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, from her home state, John Lewis, and she throws that into the mix as also Mm -hmm. part of the vote. When they take that vote, that would be included, H.R. 4. So she's really putting the pressure on her, are you with us or are you not? And that's kind of why I'm suggesting that Colin Bordeaux might have to pack up and run because Pelosi's saying, I don't care about your constituency, but at the same time, I know you got Atlanta and the civil rights movement right in your backyard, and I'm going to add them to Nabala Islam and everybody else who is going to be after you. Boy, yeah, and, Republicans are enjoying this. <laughs> right. And I would add also that um, a moderate, um, the moderate Democrats who are opposing this and, and, and wanting to um, really highlight the infrastructure bill, and you can't find many, um, any instances in history where uh, a Democrat, moderates in Congress or block a transformative um, agenda from a president who has, you know, unified control. So it's it's a really interesting position that the Democrats find themselves in. Uh, Tamara, I'm glad you all brought this up. Let me just one thing quickly. Uh, I did. I, I, I neglected to point out, Tamara, that yes, in fact, the new version of the John Lewis voting rights bill is also uh, going to be voted along with the Certainly the infrastructure bill, we think, the reconciliation, the beginning of the reconciliation measure, and uh, the new version of the John uh, Lewis voting rights bill, which is scaled back from the bill that is sitting over there in the Senate that they're not going to touch tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. This bill will not advance in the Senate with, uh, you know, the filibuster still intact. But as Leo mentioned, terrible optics for a Democrat from Georgia, especially a white Democrat in a majority minority district to be blocking something like this. If, you know, I, in general, I don't think it's worth, you know, I wouldn't bet against Nancy Pelosi. You know, she might find some procedural ways to kind of make it seem like she's giving uh, centrists some sort of, um, 
you know, some sort of small victory, but I wouldn't bet against her. I think she's going to find a way to do it. And, and something that you're hearing from Pelosi's allies, which, um, which might be resonating is that this infrastructure bill, even if it passes tomorrow, it's not going to go into effect until October 1st. So it's, it's an argument they're using to say, why don't you just wait for us to hammer out all the details of the $3.5 trillion package? So um, I wonder what we'll see, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet against Nancy Pelosi. All right. We'll watch how it plays out. Leo, you get a last word before we have to get to our first break. Yeah, it's just really interesting to consider Bordeaux's company of the eight other um, House members who are in really conservative or swing districts, um, they're not unaware of what happened in 2010 with the Affordable Care Act and uh, people in those swing districts, purple districts, feeling like things had gotten a little too far left. Um, tax, taxation was a little bit too much part of the agenda and that, you know, we need to deliver meat and potatoes to the voter. And then, of course, Democrats got beat up pretty bad in the following midterm. And I think, uh, you know, they, they are also quite aware of avoiding that kind of uh, after effect. All right, let's get to our first break of the show. We've got a lot more to talk about today. We'll do that after these messages. Tamar Hallerman, Leo Smith, Representative Scott Hokum, and Claire Sanders uh, from uh, George College join us uh, for today's show. Scott Hokum, uh, so FDA has now given full approval at long last for the Pfizer uh, vaccine. Moderna is a little behind them. They say they're still gathering data right now. But, but, but uh, there's an expectation that fairly soon the Moderna vaccine may very likely get full approval from FDA as well. Um, and this comes at a time when it, Governor Kemp has certainly encouraged people to be vaccinated for a long time now. He did that last year when he and Kathleen Toomey, his DPH director, went on a state tour urging vaccinations. But there are many people who think he hasn't pushed it hard enough. He continues to talk about it as an individual choice. And let me just add one other note to that. There are Republicans around the country, although to the best of my knowledge, Kemp hasn't been one of them, who have used as a reason people should be a little cautious the fact that the vaccine didn't have full approval. So how does this change the landscape? What do you think Biden-Kemp should be doing now? And how does this affect businesses that are trying to figure out what to do about requiring vaccines for their employees? Scott? Public health is directly tied to the health of the economy. Um, healthy people work, healthy people spend money. So we really need to continue to focus uh, to bring the numbers down. And everything that I've seen and read uh, leads to the conclusion that the more people that can get vaccinated, the better off we all are. So I'm hopeful that the final FDA approval of the Pfizer vaccine will really encourage those that were hesitant to, to get vaccinated. Um, I don't see any political willingness in Georgia to really push mandates. There's a conversation that can be had about that, and you're seeing that is happening at other layers. For example, the military. Um, I'm a former service member, and when I was in the military, they put who knows what into my arm. Uh, anthrax, smallpox, um, you name it. And um, I remember always thinking, 
this is going to protect me in the event that I'm in a bad situation where I need to be protected. I would much rather have this shot than not have this shot. And it's it's a challenging moment, which we all know. We've been living through this for a long time. We're all frustrated. We're all ready for it to be over. Uh, but it really seems that the best thing that all of us can do is to take some simple measures to improve public health for everybody. It's the best way to get this into is the mirror. It, it, do you believe that Governor Kemp is doing everything he can to encourage vaccination, or do you think he needs to be stronger, Scott? I think he could be stronger. Um, I think that he has made it a focus. I think that there are real challenges within his base and his party, which he is trying to tiptoe around. Um, but I, I think that it is critical for just the state's health and well-being on all levels that we get this right from our schools to keeping the economy um, moving ahead. So, uh, I mean, my unsolicited advice is to really, really push hard uh, to get the vaccination numbers up as quickly as possible. I mean, look at what's happening in Georgia's hospitals right now. There's no beds. There's no beds. So if you have a car accident or some trauma, um, the likelihood that you're going to be cared for is low. And I have relatives who are radiologists, and they tell me, I talk to them frequently, every single scan that they're doing, every single one is COVID pneumonia, every single one. Uh, So it's, it's something that we just really have to work together to try to bring these numbers down. I wonder how much this um, this FDA approval is going to change things. And there, there are certain respects, you know, you look at, for example, recent polling from groups like the Kaiser Family Foundation, that's a pretty trustworthy group. And they, they find that three in 10 of unvaccinated people said they'd be more likely to get a shot if it were full, fully approved by FDA. Um, that's encouraging. But on the other hand, I truly wonder how many of those people um, will go in and get it. Um, At the same time, one area I think it could really make a difference is among uh, private businesses, universities, as Scott mentioned, the military, that are now going to move forward with mandates now that it is um, approved by the FDA. And I I think that has the potential to really move the needle. At the same time, it could also continue to kind of ignite all these culture wars over mandates and that we've seen in the past couple weeks and months. So I think it is a big moment, but I... I'm a little more cautious than I think some people who are saying this is going to open the floodgates and a ton of people are going to get vaccinated. Leo, um, right now, uh, to the best of my knowledge, and I may be wrong about this, the only uh, major company in Georgia that has announced it's going to require vaccines for employees coming onto their campus is uh, Cox, um, which uh, is, is requiring vaccines. I haven't seen any other big companies following suit at this point. But as Scott Holcomb says, said, as soon as FDA's approval was announced, bam, immediately, the U.S. military said every service member is going to get a shot in the arm. And it is going to be interesting to see if um, elected officials in states like Georgia, Republican states, are going to let businesses bear the brunt of all this, the possible criticism, instead of giving them cover and taking on some responsibility themselves as elected officials, Leo. 
Well, the antagonism is certainly softening, especially when you get um, a conservative base that's always pro-military, you know, joining an affinity with his military brothers and sisters um, and what they have to do. But, it, you know, the, the signs that Tamar is mentioning in, in, in the stats, but then also in the anecdotal information that we get from Donald Trump's interaction with his base that he created in Alabama, when he started saying himself, Donald Trump saying, you should get the vaccination, and they booed him. And so, uh, you know, this is a, a boat that's going to be really hard to turn around. But it is good to see Republicans, conservatives, military folks. Um, I would love to see the police, uh, uh, police officers and, and associations, et cetera, start to push this vaccination because you should get the vaccination. Claire, it's going to be interesting to see if uh, the University System of Georgia decides to take any action. We know that obviously there are many private colleges in Georgia that are requiring vaccinations uh, for students and staff coming on campus. Uh, USG has uh, not done that. You're teaching in an environment where people can wear masks, not have to wear masks, can be vaccinated, not vaccinated. Um, I wonder if this will change the needle in the university system. I have the same question. Um, I expect that it will, but I, I certainly don't know, um, given the, um, the, all of the politics involved. But um, right now we have um, recommendations for vaccines, recommendations for masks, but we've been teaching, um, I've been teaching face-to-face throughout the pandemic, and um, it will be interesting to see if this brings back some stability to our education systems and, um, and just institutions in general. I've seen this in the, or I've said this in the past on this show, and I, I really do believe it's it's true, especially in scenarios like this. Um, big corporations tend to move together or as a block, and I think universities also. So you start seeing a couple companies saying we're going to mandate this, and then everybody kind of falls like dominoes. So I, I think. You know, it was interesting when Cox, which is the AJC's corporate overlord, when they announced that that we had to get vaccinated to go in in person. And I think once we start seeing a couple more companies do that, I think you'll see a lot. And same with universities, especially if they're universities in red states um, and other places in the South that are being hit hard. I think we could see a domino effect as well. Uh, meanwhile, Scott, uh, uh, Greg Bluestein uh, reported that the mayors of Augusta, Savannah, Atlanta, and Athens have now sent a letter to Governor Kemp asking him to implement stronger measures for mitigating the virus. They're particularly concerned about the executive order he issued, which bans local officials from imposing restrictions like requiring uh, masks. And 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 again. I wonder if whether it's masks or vaccines, does this change the equation for how does Kemp pay attention to these mayors? That's a great question. Uh, I'm not sure that the executive order would survive a legal challenge, and they probably want to just. They probably both want to be able to say that they're doing the best thing for their supporters and their people, but. Look, I mean, look at what's happening in our state. The numbers, we're probably going to get record highs within the next week. It's going to be worse than it was during the high peak second phase at the end of December and January. And it gets into, 
a little bit of a philosophical issue, but it's also true of just who are the decision makers that are best suited for making these choices for their communities? Is it somebody who is at the state capitol or is it those that are in those specific communities? And I think the mayors, you know, really have the pulse on their communities and they don't want to hurt their communities. And let's just keep that in mind. They're trying to do the best things to keep things moving. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with more on Political Rewind. Tamar Hellerman, uh, the polling on the American withdrawal from Afghanistan is fascinating to look at uh, because a major- in most of the polls, uh, a, a fairly sizable majority agree with President Biden's decision to get out of Afghanistan, but then asked how the withdrawal has gone, and a majority says that essentially what a lousy job uh, the president has done. Um, and uh, you may not have seen it yet, uh, but Axios's newsletter this morning had a report that's just, uh, I think, heartbreaking. Um, they got intercepted a message from an American diplomat in Qatar talking about the conditions at one of the camps that they're sending uh, Afghan refugees to, and it apparently is overrun with rats. Uh, There are problems feeding everybody who's been coming in. This debacle just doesn't seem to go away tomorrow. Yeah, Um, and I mean, looking at at polling numbers, it shows that the honeymoon period that Joe Biden had after being elected is over. Um, You know, it's the first time where he's kind of sitting at 50-50 right now in terms of approval, disapproval. And Democrats are certainly worried because going into midterm election years, traditionally the the party out of power does much better. So I think there's some fear about um, especially the, the Democrats' ability to be able to hold the House after all that. And that's why you see such fighting over things like the infrastructure package, the reconciliation bill, because I think to so many rank-and-file Democrats, that's the way that they hope they can keep their seats and win over the American voters. So certainly all of this terrible news with the Delta variant and hospitalizations paired with um, this really messy um, evacuation process in Afghanistan certainly isn't helping their party's cause. Um, Scott, I said at the beginning of the show that you have experience in this kind of situation. Tell us about how you view this for, through the lens of what you were involved with in Iraq. Um, it, it's, it's been a very challenging week, Bill. And um, just to share with, with you and your listeners, I, I deployed three times. I deployed to Bosnia, and then I deployed it after 9-11. I was the legal advisor to the Army commander who commanded all ground forces during the initial phase of the war in Afghanistan. And then I did the same thing for the war in Iraq. So um, it's it's been very, very difficult to watch how this has unfolded. Um, it, it is difficult for me, despite not being in the room, despite not seeing what the president and other decision makers were seeing, um, that there wasn't an expectation that what happened was to happen. Uh, I think many... Um, thought that it was probably pretty likely, and especially since the Taliban had already taken over 50% of the country by the spring. But one thing that has kept me going and and I think is really, really inspiring has been 
how the veterans community has come together uh, to, to very strongly advocate for having uh, those who helped us, our allies, our interpreters, those that supported us to get them out of the country. They they continue to work all day, every day to organize, um, to get people on planes. And, it, and it's, um, I really wish it were different. We got to get our American citizens out. We got to get our allies out and the conditions need to be improved. This really is an all hands on deck situation. Scott, do you agree with uh, some of the Democrats out there who are now saying, as Tamar just did, that, yes, the election next November is a long way off, but this is, could be one of those defining moments, certainly for the Biden presidency, and it could uh, have an impact on particularly congressional Senate races, Raphael Warnock's race next year. What, what's your thought on that? It's really difficult to predict how issues will impact so far out. And sadly, I think foreign policy issues often don't matter too much. And my own uh, really pessimistic prediction is that the country will move on pretty quickly, just as it did with the actual war itself. And I think if you listen to most veterans on this, they would say that for the last two decades, we've been an Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and Coast Guard at war, but we haven't been a nation at war. And so I don't know how much people are really going to be invested in this. Claire? Representative Hawkins, thank you for your service, um, and thank you to all the um, all the current service um, members and veterans. Um, this is a very, um, like Representative Hawkins said, this was has been a very difficult week. Um, however, when we look at this in terms of American elections, you're right, um, foreign policy is important to Americans, but in terms of it's also other issues, the economy, the um, health care, all of those actually, um, if you poll Americans, 50 plus percent say that the, that the foreign policy is, a, is an important issue, but they, 80 percent of Americans say the economy is an important issue. So um, in terms of this um, affecting the midterm elections, it's, it's too early to tell. It's, it's, diff, it's too difficult to, to know if this will if this will play a role but the way how i see it playing out if it doesn't change voters minds it does play out in terms of the narrative that campaigns shape in their in their campaigns in their um, messages to voters um leo i want to ask you to comment i'll read you a little bit of it perry bacon had a really interesting column in the washington post this morning it was on the competence strategy of the biden administration and, and here's what he said, and, and here's what he's talking about. Um, Ron Klain, the chief of staff, has said, you know, what we're going to do, we're going to do things right. We're the competent ones. We're not like the previous administration. We're methodical. We think things through. And here's what Bacon says, now that we're dealing with this uh, a mess in Afghanistan, as COVID continues to spiral out of control, Here's what he says. He says, while this competence theory of politics seems intuitively correct, we're now witnessing its limitations in real time. From coronavirus vaccinations to bipartisanship to the economy, President Biden says Bacon has governed well. Yet his poll numbers have been in a slow dip for months, likely because more moderate Republican voters who may have been initially positive about Biden are still Republicans and were essentially destined to oppose the Democratic president in this hypersensitive uh, area. And, and Bacon says he's, he's, he, problems with Afghanistan and the spread of the variant were all it took for uh, the competence uh, uh, strategy 
to become vulnerable. Indeed, indeed. And, you know, and, and it's not only just Americans who are making this vulnerability last. It's also the U.K., I mean, who is quite concerned about this. So we have that, you know, when Biden said we're back, you know, to the international community, the competency is being measured in how you're back. And, and that has taken a hit. And then there are issues like inflation that he's having to deal with um, that, that is also affecting the approval rating. So, you know, Democrats are, are losing right now some favor, um, as the polling is showing. Republicans are gaining favor on competence issues uh, related to what they're considering Biden's incompetence as it relates to education as a priority, as it relates to people feeling that they can go and worship and businesses can open. Some of those things are, are opportunities for Republicans to gain favor, while this competency of uh, Joe Biden's um, in not being able to play um, them as Perry Bacon, I've read that article. As a matter of fact, Perry Bacon said you should do both in both competency and uh, make sure that you're appealing to your basis sentiments. Hey, Tamara, I want to turn it over to you, but 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 Leo, send me some data that shows this uh, rise in approval for how Republicans are handling these issues. I'd love to see it. I haven't seen it, and uh, maybe we can report on it in a show coming up, Tamar. It's really easy to run against something when you're out of power. Um, and it's much harder, especially as commander in chief stuff happens and you've got to deal with it. And it might not be your fault, but people are still going to pin the blame on you because they have to pin the blame on somebody. And so, yeah, Biden was in a strong position because he wasn't Donald Trump and Donald Trump was deeply unpopular with a lot of voters. So it was almost easy for, for Joe Biden to kind of swoop in and appeal to even disenchanted Republicans Um but now he's, you know, he's the one in charge. The buck has to stop with somebody. And so fair or not, um, you know, voters are going to make his party answer for it. So, um, you know, and, and it's going to be especially easy for Republicans who are in the minority on Capitol Hill now um, because they, you know, they, they don't have a hand in a lot of these decisions, but they can poke holes in, in what the Democrats are doing. So it's a tough challenge for Democrats. There's a lot of time before now in the, in the midterms. And so lots can change. Lots can happen. And I think Claire is right that, um, you know, especially foreign policy issues tend to um, not be as important to voters, especially in congressional contests. It's more about kitchen table issues like health care and the economy. Um, but who knows? There's a lot that can happen in the next um, year and change. Uh, Scott, before we change subjects, it is interesting that John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, unlike some Democrats who've been willing to be pretty outspoken in their criticism of the way the Biden administration has handled this withdrawal, they've both uh, kind of pulled back from that, focused instead on let's do everything we can from a humanitarian point of view, getting the uh, Afghans out. Is that a smart strategy for them politically? Um, yeah, it probably is. Uh, and I certainly agree with the effort to, to get people out. I've publicly reached out to the governor's office for the state to be supportive of refugees. And I think that there is broad support and a recognition that this is a crisis and, and, and we need to work very hard to, to try to make it better. Okay, uh, let's move on. Uh, Leo Smith, um, I kiddingly said to before the show to some of you, uh, talking about Herschel Walker and whether he's going to run for the Senate or not, I'm just starting to feel I shouldn't use his name because he hasn't done anything. He hasn't told us he's running yet. So I thought maybe we should say he who must not be named. 
But he who must not be named has now registered to vote in Georgia, Leo. Sounds to me like he's finally taking positive steps to become a candidate. It does seem that he is uh, taking those steps now. And I've been a big doubter based on uh, just relationships that I have with uh, UGA football players that played with him that he was going to do this. Um, it'd be interesting, as uh, Todd Ream uh, from Georgia Pundit has uh, actually queried this morning, as to whether or not he did that in person or did he do that electronically. But the bigger thing is, is that what we've already heard, time kills deals, uh, like it kills bills, as, as we just recently heard. But time also kills candidates because it gives the opposition, uh, you know, Commissioner Black, for instance, um, the ability to then gauge the sentiments of people about this guy is playing us and he's not committed and we don't really know who he is. And then all that oppositional data about how he treated his wife and the problems that he's had, all that stuff now has hurt his candidacy and given him a harder road to hoe if he does indeed announce. Claire? All right. I would say that in campaigns take time. They take time to build a framework. They take time to build a structure and um, you have people like Gary Black, who, whose name is in the in the hat for um, this race, who all who already have those frameworks in place. Um, yes, Herschel Walker has wonderful name recognition in the state of Georgia, obviously, but Gary Black has is, has name recognition too, and also the infrastructure to support that. Scott Scott Holcomb. Um... How formidable a candidate do you as a Democrat see Walker as being? We've had uh, panelists on this show, both Democrats, Republicans, and political science professors, whatever, who tell us they really think he is so enormously popular with Georgians because of his football career that he will be a tough candidate, even though there are all these problems that he's going to have to fend off. Uh, I think there's probably some truth to that. Look at the state to our west. I mean, they sent somebody with a football background who doesn't even know the three branches of government to the United States Senate. So uh, this is not a meritocracy. And and so uh, just to disabuse everybody of that right now. And I think he would be formidable, and he would particularly be formidable uh, if um, the former president, puts his finger on the scale, which is expected. Uh, I think that the primary would probably fall in behind him if that's what uh, the flock was told to do. Um, we're running out of time, but tomorrow, of course, Scott Hogan's referring to Tommy Tuberville, who won a Senate seat in Alabama, largely based on the fact that he was a successful football coach over there. Tomorrow, let me give you the last word on this. Yeah, um, I mean, there still is, is a lot of time for things to develop, but at the same time, yeah, he has great name recognition, but he's also not Stacey Abrams. He's a, he's a new candidate. He he still has to learn how to be a candidate and how to run a campaign. So it'll be interesting to see how all of it plays out. All right. We'll watch for that. We'll watch to see if he, in fact, now is getting into the race. It'll give us something to talk about in the weeks ahead. Uh, and uh, we'll uh, stay on top of that story and a lot more on Political Rewind. So that's it. For our uh, show today, uh, Tamar Hallerman, always love having you on on our Tuesday shows. Uh, Leo Smith, thank you so much. Uh, Representative Scott Holcomb and Claire Sanders, did you, what did you, first time on the show, did it work out pretty well for you? Did you like being here? I enjoyed it tremendously. I don't know if y'all can say the same, but I really enjoyed it. So thank I, you for we having will, me. We'd love to have you back at some point. That's it for us. Uh, for today's show. Thank you 
to Amelia Brock, Amber, Miss Dawes, and Jesse Neiswanger for all they do to make this show happen. Uh, we'll be back again tomorrow. I'm Bill Nigat. Uh, remember, take care, stay healthy. Yes, wear your mask indoors. And now that FDA approves it completely, go get a Pfizer vaccine if you haven't had it. See you all tomorrow.